You might notice that we are jumping into the message time a little early today. The reason for that is because we're going to be grappling with um, a really kind of a difficult subject matter, and we're going to leave some time on the back end today just to, to pray and to kind of uh, just be with God kind of on the, on the back end, so, so know that's where we're headed. But uh, for now, I want to start by confessing an area of sin in my life, and I'm really serious about this. It's something that God's working on me uh, in, and uh, it, it has to do with my pride. And here's the issue is that you know, I, I tend to think that I communicate fairly clearly and so it gets frustrating to me when someone doesn't understand what is really clear in my head. <laughs> what she said? I love it. Yes, Charlotte, that's it. When I'm speaking clearly and you can't understand me, what is wrong with you, right? And, and I get frustrated with that sometimes until I remember that I do exactly the same thing with God. You know, that God is so clear. And the things that he communicates. And sometimes I just don't get it. And that's what we see uh, happening in Malachi's day. And we see in the passage that we're about to jump into today. God's getting a little worn out by it. Like it, they, they just don't seem to get it. So our theme this year for 2023 is what? Deeper. It's the name of our theme. Yes, we're talking about going deeper. We're talking about how to walk more intimately with God and looking like, what does that look like? And uh, really, it's not about doing more for God. It's about abiding in Him more and going deeper in that relationship. And you know that I've become convinced that what sets people apart who walk deeply with God isn't necessarily what we might think it is. I think sometimes we think about those who are really deep in their faith as the ones that never do much wrong, right? Their, 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 their lives are exemplary all the time, and uh, certainly that can be a part of it. But you know, I read through the Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, and as far as I can tell, there's only one man who is ever described as being a man after God's own heart. And who is that? It's David. What do we know about David. No, we, we know that he loved God. We know that you know, he wrote a bunch of the Psalms and uh, he loved to worship God. And so there was a real tenderness in his relationship with God. Uh, but we also know about David that he sinned. And when he did, he did it pretty big. He, he, he blew it a lot and in some pretty major ways. But the thing that we also know about David is that when he was confronted with his sin, he was quick to repent. Psalm 51 is a beautiful example. Um, you know, it took him a minute before he was confronted with it and, and, and dealt with it. But once he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and then part of the uh, working through that process, part of his repentance process was writing Psalm 51, where it's just a beautiful expression of David's uh, desire to be made right with God. But, you know, I, I love that because it just reminds me that in order for us to go deeper, it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll never mess up, but it does mean that we have to have a very tender heart to where when God addresses things with us, we're quick to respond and quick to repent, and that's not what's happening in Malachi's day. In fact, what's happening in the book of Malachi is that God is confronting them with a variety of different things, and every time he does, they ask the question, well, how have we done that? Parents that ever had that experience, you're trying to deal with something with your kids, I, I didn't do, how did I do that? You know, and that's really kind of what we see here, and we do the same thing. Not just kids, it's adults, it's all of us. 
They always want to point the, the finger somewhere else. So Malachi chapter 2, let's jump in. We ended it in verse 17. Where, well, I guess we ended in 16. We're going to pick up in 17 and then go through chapter 3, verse 5. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So you get this picture that God's getting a little worn out from the complaints that people are bringing against him. And uh, he says that you know, the, the, the complaint here is that God is not bringing justice on the wicked. Now, the real question, I guess, is how do we define the wicked? And I'll tell you how we define that. We define it as somebody else who's done something wrong that you know, God needs to deal with, right? That's how we think about it. And we miss the fact that, that we are part of that as well. We sometimes don't include ourselves in that. Uh, but I, I do suspect that one of the reasons that God is getting wearied of their, their words, it says here, is because they're accusing God of injustice, but they're missing the fact that they deserve God's judgment as well. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. Uh, but bottom line is this. There are, there are things that happen in this life that don't make sense to us, that don't seem just or don't seem right. Maybe, maybe don't seem fair in some regard. We go through financial crises. Families split apart. People get diagnosed with incurable diseases. We lose family members unexpectedly. I mean, things happen, and we don't understand it. And we might look at that and say, it just doesn't seem right. But here's the first main idea for today. It's okay to ask God questions. It isn't okay to accuse him of injustice. And there is a difference there. There's a difference between God, I don't understand why is this happening, to accusing God of being unjust, which is really what's happening here. And they're asking this question, where is the God of justice? They're upset with God. They seem to have forgotten the fact that God is always the protagonist in the story. God is, is not the one who is to be blamed when things are not going right. We see the same thing in the book of Job, by the way. We recently read that through our Bible reading program, uh, where Job basically begins to question God's justice. And, you know, you look at all the things that Job went through, and, and we can understand why Job would have questions. I mean, he, uh, you know, God took away from him so much, he, 
He took away his children. He took away all of his possessions. He took away his health. All of these things Job lost. And he begins to not just you know, lament what he has lost. There's no problem with that. But the issue comes when Job starts to say, I wish I could stand on trial before God because I, I have a case that I want to bring against God. And I think sometimes we miss that. You know, when we think about Job, we, we kind of think about this guy who is just almost perfect. And we miss the fact that, yeah, he, Job crossed the line. Uh, when, when it came to some of these things. For example, Job 9, 23 and 24. This is Job speaking. He says, when a scourge brings sudden death, he, the he is God here. He mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? And the case that Job is making is the buck stops with God. And so when all of these things are happening, who is to blame? God is, and God is not just, and he wants to plead his case before him. Now, we'll come back later and see you know, how that went, because that wasn't such a good thing. But the, the question that he is raising here, that, that I think even in Malachi's day, the question that they're raising, it's this age-old question that's been around forever. But essentially, it's some form of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, that, that's a question people have wrestled with for centuries and centuries. And it's not an easy question, by the way. It's not just a simple, here's a simple answer. But I, I do want us to consider two things. If we're asking that question, why do bad things happen to good people? I want us to consider how do we really understand what is bad and how do we really understand what is good? And starting with the first one, why do bad things happen to good people. Um, when, when we are, are saying, essentially what we're saying is that we are determining when something happens that is painful or difficult that we put a label on that thing of being bad. And from our perspective, it may very well be. But one of the things we see throughout Scripture is that God is often at work in ways behind the scenes that we don't even know. We don't recognize at the time. So we recently, just this past week in our reading plan, we've been reading the story of Joseph. One of the greatest examples of something, I, I think it's fair to say that this, what Joseph went through from his perspective was really bad. His brother's you know, dump him in a, in a cistern. Some of them wanted to leave him there to die, but they eventually at least pulled him out, sold him as a slave into Egypt. He goes into the home of a guy by the name of Potiphar. Uh, he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife, who repeatedly tries to seduce him, but he keeps his distance from her. Finally, she grabs him one day. He just runs, leaves his cloak in her hands. She accuses him of attempting to rape her, so he gets thrown in prison. While he's in prison, he continues to be faithful. And he serves very faithfully in prison. He interprets dreams. He thinks, maybe this is my chance to get out. Um, he's left in prison. We don't know exactly how long, but, but more than a decade from the best we can piece things together. It's probably about how long he was in prison. That's a long time. And finally, he comes out and he's able to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And then God uses that to put him in a position where he is able, and actually today's reading, Genesis 50, is part of what we read today, where you get to Genesis 50, 20, and, and he's saying, you know, God intended this, what Satan intended for harm, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. So that was the big picture. God had a purpose all along. Uh, I don't know that Joseph would have understood 
all of that at the time, and a lot of times we don't. When we're right in the middle of it, when we're in that, that prison time or that slavery time, it may not look like God is doing anything, but God is at work. So when we, when we um, ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, I think we first have to realize our perspective of what is bad may not necessarily be God's perspective. He might be doing something through that circumstance that we don't see. Now, the second question is, how do we define what is good? If we're asking why do bad things happen to good people, we need to ask, well, who, who is a good person? And Jesus answered this question. Jesus defined who is good in Mark 10, 18. It says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So, if we're asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people, we really need to rephrase it and ask it this way. Why do bad things happen to good person? Because there's only one who's ever lived. We, we are not inherently good. Now, I, I understand what we mean by that, right? We, when we talk about somebody being a good person, we're saying we see this person doing things. Uh, there are things in their life that, that, are, that are good, and that can be very true. But... Bottom line is that all of us are flawed by sin, and as a result of that, all of us really deserve punishment and wrath from God, not God's blessing. Now, thankfully, that's not what we receive because of Christ, and we'll talk about that more here in just a moment. But there is an assumption behind that question of why do bad things happen to good people that somehow there is some type of injustice. You know, this person doesn't deserve what they're getting. That's really the assumption underneath that that statement or that question. Um, well, if we understand from Scripture that, that none of us measure up in God's eyes, maybe that changes our perspective on it just a little bit. But we still wrestle with it, right? And there are still difficulties. And, and in verse 17, the people are wrestling with it so much so that they're accusing God of something that's not true because uh, they're saying that, that God is pleased with the wicked or pleased with those who are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's not true, but they're assuming that that is true because God's justice is delayed in this circumstance. Now, again, it makes me think of Job, who wanted to plead his case. Let's come back to his example. In Job 38, verses 2 and 3, Job gets his opportunity to stand before God. And let's just read it. This is God speaking to Job. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job found out pretty darn quick it's not a good idea to question God's justice. And God let it rip for four chapters. And he just said, you know, he just, I mean, just one after the other. And Job's response in chapter 42, Job 42, 1 through 6, says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job got put in his place, but I will say too, back to what we said a moment ago, he also had enough humility and enough tenderness of heart to realize where he had stepped out of line and to say, I want to repent and get, you know, God, I'm sorry, and I, I, I should not have spoken the way that I did. 
It's a powerful passage, but it reminds us it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to have things we don't understand. It's not okay to accuse God of injustice. God is a just God, and he will deal with injustice. But that does lead me to the second thing today, and that is that justice is coming in God's timing. And that last little phrase is really important, in God's timing. Because rarely does God bring justice immediately. I think of one example in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, where it says that they lied to God and they dropped dead on the spot. Just boom, right there on the spot, you know, just dropped dead. That, that is a, an unusual example, but it is an example of God bringing immediate justice upon sin. Normally it doesn't work that way. Normally there is a, a lag there. Uh, but it is coming, and chapter 3 is all about God's plan. He says, I have a plan that this is going to come. Verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So this is the first part of the plan. This messenger is going to come who is going to prepare the way, by the way, notice what he says, before me. This is really significant. God says, I am coming but first, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way for me. Now, does that bring anybody to mind when you read that? It makes me think about John the Baptist, right? That He came to prepare the way for Jesus. In fact, he described himself by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, the custom in ancient times for a king who planned to visit a particular area was to send a messenger... To prepare the way for the king's coming. And he would do things uh, like let the people know when he planned to arrive so that they could prepare a royal welcome. He would indicate the route that the king planned to take. He would remove any obstacles from the road. I mean, just you know, preparing the way so that when the king came, the people were ready. And God said that he would send this messenger, and that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Jesus came right on the heels of the public ministry of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came, notice also it says here that, that he would send this messenger. Uh, it says, the, mes the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. This is the, the, the coming of the, the Messiah who would usher in this new covenant. You know, the one that you are waiting on, that this person is going to come. Now keep in mind that Malachi wrote this a little over 400 years before the coming of Christ. And then God goes silent for four centuries. Now, do you wonder what must have been going through the minds of the people for 400 years to wait on God to fulfill this promise of the, the, the one who would come, of he himself would come? I wonder if... That's part of the reason it was difficult for the people to receive Jesus as the Messiah because so much time had passed since they had any real word from God. And I think, man, there are times in my life that I've prayed about something or I've asked God for something, I've waited on God for something, and it's taken several years. Or in some cases, maybe I'm still waiting on God for something, and I'm like, man, this has been years, God. <laughs> But now look at this, like, that's just 400 years. I mean, if I live to be 100 years old and, and wait my entire life on God for something, that's still just a fraction of the time that they were waiting for God to fulfill this. And so, hopefully, we can be encouraged by that to be reminded that even when it seems that God isn't 
responding on our timetable, um, he's still working, and he still had a plan here. And, and his, his plan was to send this messenger ahead and then to, to send the, the one of the, the new covenant. And then verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Interesting, too, the, to point out that when he came... That the purpose of his coming wasn't to destroy everyone, it was to refine and purify. That's why he was coming. And that's exactly why Jesus came, not to destroy us, but to purify us of our sins through his own sacrifice on our behalf. And he gives a couple of examples here. You know, a launderer's soap being something that would be used to scrub, to get clothes very clean and very, uh, to restore them back to a, a bright white color again. Or a refiner's fire, and I'm sure we've all heard those uh, explanations before of how that works, where they would take precious metals, melt them down into a liquid form, and all the impurities rise to the top. They would scrape the impurities off the top, and then it would you know, cool back down and, and be pure uh, in its pure form. But he says, I'm, I'm going to purify and then verse 3 says that, that it will start with the Levites. And we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, the fact that the, the spiritual leaders need to be corrected first because they're leading the people and the level of the pew can never rise above the level of the pulpit. And so that you start with those who are in spiritual authority. And isn't it interesting when you look at the public ministry of Jesus, who were the people that Jesus had the run-ins with? You know, the ones that he really confronted, those were the religious leaders. It was, you know, it was the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the people like that. Uh, he didn't have the run-ins with the sinners, you know, uh, that they had a, a different experience with him. So we see, again, Jesus fulfilling that. But what we don't see is what is described in verse 5. Because verse 5 just says, here are all these people who have sinned, and I'm going to deal with them very harshly. That did not happen in the first coming of Christ. Now again, the day will come when that will happen, when Jesus returns. But I love the way, there's a Bible commentator by the name of Robert Alden. And I read something he had to say that I thought he was spot on. It said, like most Old Testament prophets, Malachi, in his picture of the coming Christ, mingled the two advents. In other words, a lot of times in Old Testament prophecy, we see certain things that apply to the first coming or first advent of Jesus and the second mingled together. And that's really what we see here. This purifying Jesus coming, but then the, the final judgment on sin has not come yet. And it will, and we will get into that. Uh, and, you know, the book of Revelation deals a lot with that. But if you've ever longed for that day when it will come, you're not alone. Revelation 9, or excuse me, verse, chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Do you ever read stuff like that and you're like, yes, I'm so ready for God to come and bring judgment. I'm ready for injustice to be done away with. But before we rush into a call for justice, let me remind you of just one other thing, and that is we really want mercy, not justice. It's easy to call for justice when somebody else is on the hook. 
we want other people who pervert justice to be held accountable. That's what we mean when we say we want injustice to be removed. And, and guys, the fact is there's a lot of injustice in our world. There really is. There are a lot of things that, that we deal with that we just want to see made right. There's a lot of heartbreak out there. And so, yes, we want God to bring justice. But the problem is that when we're pointing the finger at someone else who deserves God's judgment, we forget there are three fingers pointing right back at us. That we deserve that as well. And I'm so thankful that God offers us mercy, not just judgment. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 puts it this way. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God being described here as rich in mercy. I'm so thankful that's true, aren't you? Because I desperately need God's mercy and not just a little bit. I need heaping helpings of God's mercy. And God is rich in mercy. And because of that, we can find forgiveness. We can, can find grace. Verse 1 previews the way that's coming when it talks about the messenger of the new covenant. This is the covenant described in Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, when it says the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now listen to this new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This new covenant is based on relationship. And it's all about experiencing the mercy and the grace of God. That's what we want. We want mercy, not justice. And I'm so thankful that because of what Christ has done, because Jesus came and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, that we can receive mercy. We can be forgiven. That Christ has done everything necessary for us in order for us to experience his grace. And so today, I, I just want to kind of wrap up on that note of asking that question. Have you come to a point of trusting in Christ personally? And if not, I want to lead us through an opportunity to, to pray a prayer. This is for those that are here. This is for those that are watching online. But you can pray a prayer of faith and trust saying, Jesus, I want to give my heart and my life to you. And when we pray and invite him into our lives, that's exactly what he will do. He will give us grace and forgiveness. And so let's just bow our heads for a moment. We're going to put the words actually on the screen if you need this. But just a sample prayer of something that you could pray to trust in Christ. If you're ready to give your heart to Jesus and pray a prayer, something like this. God, I know that I don't measure up. I know that I'm sinful. But I thank you for your plan to send Jesus to rescue me from my sins. Lord, I need your mercy. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins and that he rose from the dead on the third day. I turn away from my sins and I put my full trust in you. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.